Well, we're glad you're here this morning, and we're going to be continuing uh, in this sermon series based off the Jesus Storybook Bible. And so a quick recap for those of you who may be joining us for the first time. In week one of this series, Andrew talked about creation and how God spoke and things came into existence and he said they were good. And then he formed humanity out of the dust of the earth and he breathed life into them and he said, it is very good. And then in week two, Andrew talked about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and how everything was how it was supposed to be and then sin entered the world and we had the fall. And before we go on, I want to call a quick time out and kind of echo a little bit what Camille said. So I want to remind you or encourage you to continue to pray for Andrew on his sabbatical. Um, wow, there's emotion with that. Um, he just pours so much into this ministry. And so it's such a blessing that he has time to disconnect and get recharged and refocused. Um, and I'm excited and I'm expectant for the way the Lord's going to meet him in that. Uh, but yeah, I encourage you to just continue to pray for Andrew and Camille, because he's probably home a lot more than she's used to. <laughs> but last week we talked about Noah and the ark and the flood and how that story paints these pictures of Jesus and our relationship with him. And if you're following along in the, in the Jesus Storybook Bible, um, you may notice that we've skipped ahead a couple stories today. We've skipped ahead to the story of Abraham and Isaac. But just like last week, there is so much in this story that reveals who Jesus is. And I mentioned last week that the Bible is made up of all these amazing stories. But all of those stories tie together into one big story that point to Jesus. Every Old Testament picture has a New Testament principle. And every New Testament picture has an Old Testament principle. It's a reflection of Jesus, this entire book. And so today, when we get to Genesis 22, we see this story of Abraham called to sacrifice his son Isaac. And I didn't think about this till this morning. I'm not sure how they're teaching this upstairs, but hopefully it's not like that video. When the story, when this story is often taught, we talk about Abraham's unwavering faith. And that is absolutely true. But also, I think there is way more in this story that paints a much bigger picture. It's a, it's a perfect picture of the gospel from the very beginning. So we see scripture tell us that Abraham has been faithful for many years. He has seen God do amazing things in his life long before we get to Genesis 22. God had promised Abraham that he would have a son and that he would create nations through him. But as we also know through Scripture, Abraham is pretty old. And it says his wife Sarah is barren. So they can't figure out how they're going to have this son. So they take it upon themselves. Scripture tells us that Abraham had relations with Sarah's servant Hagar. And they had a son, named him Ishmael. And then God comes along and says, no, you're going to have a son of your own. Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a son of your own. 
And when Sarah hears this, we see in Genesis 18.22 that she laughs at that proposition. Because at the time of this story, at the time of Isaac's birth, Sarah would have been 90 and Abraham would have been 100 years old. So as you can see, that's pretty easy to laugh at. But we also see that God has this miracle birth, this miracle conception, miracle birth. Just like we see in Isaiah 7:14, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son that you will call him Emmanuel. So we see this parallels of this, this story, Abraham and Isaac already starting with Jesus. And since we've watched the video, I'm not going to read through all of this, but we're just going to kind of walk through it today and look at all of the parallels. So it starts in Genesis 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Now, this is an important point that we need to stop and look at for a moment. God is testing Abraham. He is not tempting Abraham. Temptation is something that the enemy does to try to bring out the worst in our humanity. But God will test us to bring out the best in our humanity, our faith in him. And I don't know how all that works. I'm sure some of that can both happen at the same time. But one of the ways that we can know is by trusting in God, trusting in his sovereignty. Right? Because we know Romans 8.28, and we know all things God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. How do we know if our faith is good? We test it. We put it to hardship. Because it's easy to say, I love God, when everything in our lives is going according to plan. It's easy to say, praise the Lord, when we know that the cupboards are full. And one of the, one of the highlights of my job is when I get to perform weddings. But I'll be honest, I think pretty much every wedding I've ever performed, at some point during the ceremony, I've giggled to myself. Because I look at the couple as they stand before me and they just have this deer-in-the-headlight look. Like they're, they're listening, but they're not really hearing me, if you know what I mean. But what makes me kind of giggle is when they, they turn and they face each other and they're they're just staring into each other's eyes, and I say, repeat after me, and they exchange their vows. And in their vows, they say, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poor, in good times and in bad. And that's good, but I think in that moment that's full of love and is full of joy, I think what they hear is good times, richer, healthy. But the reality is their love for one another, their faith for one another, is going to be tested. It's going to be tested in the bad, in the poor, in the sickness. So we see God is testing Abraham, not tempting him. And in this test, we see God testing the most sensitive part of Abraham's life, his son Isaac. All his promises from God are wrapped up in Isaac. Verse 2 says, take your son, your only son, 
whom you love, Isaac. Go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. But now wait a minute. We already know that he has another son named Ishmael. Ishmael was a work of the flesh. Isaac is the true work of God. But then he says, the one whom you love. And the parallels continue. This is the first time in Scripture that we see the word love used. It's not used with Adam and Eve. It's not used with Abraham and Sarah. It is painting the picture of the love of a father for his child. A love of a father for his son. And when a prominent word like this is used in Scripture, we need to pay attention to it because that often sets the tone for how it's used throughout. So when we see love used for the first time here, it's talking about the love of a father for a son. And we see the same in the New Testament. In Matthew 3.17, when Jesus is baptized in the Jordan and he comes out of the water and the Holy Spirit descends upon him, we hear God say, this is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And we see that same story in the Gospel of Mark and the same story in the Gospel of Luke. And when we get to John, the first time we see the word love used is in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And throughout Scripture, we see God audibly speak to Jesus three times. And two of those three times, he says, I love you. So we see this picture of how powerful this word love is. It's this picture of a love for his, a father for his son. I think it's so powerful when it introduces that in Scripture, but I think it's also a powerful, a powerful reminder for us for the dads that have kids, how important it is that our children hear we love them. It says, take him to the land of Moriah. So what is Moriah? It is a, it's a ridge of mountains by Jerusalem. And we see in 1st and 2nd Chronicles, this is a land that this man named Ornon had a, a threshing floor. And then as you read on, David comes along and he buys the land. And then Solomon comes along and he builds a temple there. And just north of where the temple would have been, kind of at the peak of this Moriah Ridge, was a place called Golgotha, or Calvary. A place where Jesus would later be sacrificed. And this is the only place where we see God asking for human sacrifice. We see in Leviticus that he would later say that he would never ask or accept human sacrifice. So we see all the parallels playing out. And then in verse 3, it says, early the next morning. So imagine this. Abraham gets this command from God that you're supposed to sacrifice your son whom you love. And he has to sit with that through the night. Most of us can't sleep when our kid has a cold. He had to wrestle with this all night, that he was called to sacrifice his son. I can't imagine. 
But what does Abraham do? He gets up early. It says he saddles his donkey. He takes two of his young men with him. He takes Isaac with him. He splits the wood and he sets out. Abraham is just deliberate. He's doing what he is called to do. But notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't tell anybody what the plan is. There's no record of him sharing this with anybody. He's just being deliberate in his actions. And so knowing what he is called to do through all of this, in some ways, I wonder if Isaac was already in his mind dead. But he also knows that all of God's promises are through Isaac. So somehow in all of this, Abraham has to be preparing for either a reprieve or a resurrection. Abraham, or in Hebrews eleven seventeen through 18, it says, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. So Abraham is wrestling with this. I'm called to sacrifice him, but all my promises are in him. And so he sets off Abraham and his son Isaac. And it says they have two servants with them. One of the pictures it paints here, how many people were hanging with Jesus or were with Jesus when he was hanging on the cross? Two. And it says this is a three-day journey to where, in Abraham's mind, Isaac is dead. How many days was Jesus dead? Three. So we see this parallel, or the pictures being painted. In verse 4 and 5, Abraham, it says, he looks off in the distance, and he sees the place. And he tells the servants, wait here with the donkeys. We see in the New Testament, Jesus entering into the Garden of Gethsemane. And he tells Peter, James, and John, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. And I'm sure that is an emotion or a feeling that Abraham could relate to. But then Jesus says, stay here and keep watch with me. And then it says he went on a little further to be alone with the Father. So Abraham says, you wait here with the donkeys while I and the boy go over there. But imagine if you can what Abraham must have been thinking and feeling as he made that walk up that ridge with his son. Knowing what he is prepared to do. Would you be reflecting on all of those special moments that you've had with your son? His growing up, the laughter, the playtime. You have all that. But then you have this, but I know I'm called to sacrifice him. God, I am calling on your promises. The amount of faith that Abraham has in this moment. And it dawned on me last night that Abraham could have been an Iowa Hawkeye fan. Like it takes tremendous faith, even though you've seen it play out. But you always feel like you're waiting on a miracle from God. 
And there's the whole father protecting his son thing. But that's, that might have been too far, sorry. But then the other thing I wondered is, as I mentioned earlier, Abraham didn't tell anybody the plan. So then I got to wondering, like, I wonder if Abraham was thinking what I sometimes think, and some of you guys might relate to this. Like, he's going to do something that he's not real sure how this is going to turn out. How am I going to explain that to my wife? The emotion and the thoughts of Abraham had to be racing. But I think the next two things that it says about Abraham, or the next two things he says, reveal so much of who Abraham was, so much of his heart. When he says, wait here with the donkeys, the boy and I will go over there. And then he says, we will worship. Really? In the midst of that, he says, we will worship. Friends, what if we choose to take our worst moments and turn them into worship moments? Keep our eyes fixed on God and only glance at the problem rather than gazing on our problem and glancing at God. Right? Peter was walking on water when he kept focused on Jesus. But when he looked at the storm, he looked at the crashing waves, that's when he began to sink. What if we turn our worst moments into worship moments? And then Abraham says something really confusing. He says, we will come back. Again, it reveals the heart of Abraham. He knows that he's going to sacrifice his son, but at the same time he says, we will come back. He is fully expectant of a resurrection. So verse 6 says he takes the wood and he lays it on Isaac's back. So Isaac, carrying the altar on which he will be sacrificed, up Mount Moriah, just like Jesus will, generations later. Abraham, it says he had fire and a knife. And we see throughout Scripture that fire is referred to as a symbol for God's judgment. And a knife or a sword is talked about in Ephesians when it lists the armor of God. The, the sword is God's word. It's God's promise. So then we get to verse 7 and 8. And we see the only recorded conversation between Abraham and Isaac. Isaac says, my father. To which Abraham replies, yes, my son. Same way we see Jesus in prayer when he talks about father or Abba. And then Isaac mentions the fire and the wood. He gets the, the sacrifice and he gets the judgment, but he doesn't mention God's promise. He doesn't mention the knife. And he asks about the lamb. And Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb. And what's interesting with that is Isaac doesn't, well, it's not recorded. Isaac doesn't say another word. Like this must have satisfied him. Because it says they continued on together. And in verse 9, we get to this where, where Abraham builds an altar 
And it says, Isaac was laid on it and he was bound. But keep in mind, like some translations say that Isaac was a lad. So that gives us this reference that Isaac is somewhere between 13 and 40 years old. Which also means that Abraham is somewhere between 113 and 140 years old. That's pretty old. No offense to anybody that's 140. But it shows no signs of struggle. There's no fight. There's no misunderstanding. Isaac lays on the altar and he was bound by Abraham. When Jesus prayed before his death in Matthew 26, 39, he said, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. I wonder if this is Isaac's heart in the moment. And we get, we get to the climax of this story where Isaac's on the altar and Abraham takes out the knife and raises it up and he's ready to sacrifice his son. The overwhelming emotion that would be in that moment to stand over a child that you love I mean, I'm sure the shame had set in. The fear had set in. And then you have Isaac, scared and confused, laying on the altar, looking up at his father. But in that moment is when the reprieve comes. The angel of the Lord calls to Abraham and says, Do not lay a hand on the boy. I won't try to imitate the voice that's in the video. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Abraham just passed the test. Now again, put yourself in that moment. The overwhelming relief that would set in. Like when I passed a test in high school, I felt relief, but this has to be at a whole new level. The relief they both felt. God was faithful. And Isaac, in a way, is raised from the dead without even having to die. Verse 13, they see a ram stuck in the thicket. And they use that for the burnt offering. Which is good. But think of how that plays out. Abraham would have had to take the time to untie Isaac, to remove him from the altar catch the ram, put it on the altar, bind it up, and sacrifice it. How did that whole conversation play out? But we see this picture of the gospel being played out throughout this story. Abraham had told Isaac that God will provide the lamb. And we see in John one twenty nine, John the Baptist calling out the same thing. When he sees Jesus walking towards him, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, the perfect and spotless Lamb, would be sacrificed for our sin. And then we read in verses 15 through 18 in Genesis 22, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time, 
and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed. Why? Because you have obeyed me. But then look what happens. In verse 19, it says that Abraham returns to the men, and they go to Bathsheba. Where did Isaac go? We knew he's been saved. We knew that he'd been spared from death. But he's not mentioned. Scripture never mentions the two of them together, Abraham and Isaac together, until we see Isaac at Abraham's grave. Abraham died when he was 175. And it says that Abraham and, or Isaac and Ishmael buried him. But then again, Isaac disappears until we see him return to be united with his bride, Rebecca. He's gone and he returns to be united with his bride. Jesus ascends to heaven and the next time we get to see him, we, the body, the church, is when we're united with our bridegroom. He is our bridegroom. We, as the church, are his bride. So we see this story time and time again. This image of the love of a father. A son conceived by a miracle and named even before he is born. Offered, his son offered as a sacrifice. For three days thought to be dead, but was raised up then comes back to be united with his bride. It gives us this example of God being faithful and what it means when we're faithful to him. To trust him and to worship him even when we can't see the plan. To turn our worst times into worship times. Abraham said God himself will provide a lamb. And if you continue through, about 28 generations later, that thing happened. Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in Revelations, it talks about, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And this term worthy is a, is a weight word if you think about it with a scale, right? When you, when you have a scale and you go to purchase something, it, you put it on there and it weighs it down. And until you put something on the other side of equal value or of same weight, and when those things e even out, you're considered worthy and you've purchased what you want. When we take our grief, when we take our shame, our guilt, our addiction, our dysfunction, our sin, we really weigh down that scale. But worthy is the lamb who was slain. Jesus paid for that. 
He went to the cross to balance the scale, to pay for our sin. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And we get to remember that. One of the things we get to to focus on is all that Jesus did for us on the cross when we take communion. And this morning is known as World Communion Sunday. Today is a day to remember that Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And that every Christian church in any denomination that promotes Christian unity, today is the day we remember that we are all one body. So in a moment, we're going we're gonna to take communion together, knowing that Christians all over the world will be participating in this same sacrament. And we promote that us being all one body, whose sin was paid for by Christ on the cross. We remember that the Lamb is worthy. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for all you've done on the cross. All the things that we are so unworthy to receive. But we are worthy because you say we are. Jesus, you paid the price for all the ways that we fail, for all of our sin, all of our shame and guilt. You say, I love you enough that I'm willing to die for you. So as we come to the communion table this morning, Holy Spirit, would you prepare our hearts? Would you prepare our hearts that this wouldn't just be a routine or a a ritual that we go through, but that we'd be convicted of our sin, that we would be brought to repentance, and that we would worship the worthy Lamb of God. Let it be so. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.